This program is brought to you by Preserve Gold, the number one precious metals IRA provider. Call 855-962-3322. Global military spending hitting a record high $2.2 trillion this year. The U.S. tops the spending list, with China tailing closely behind. We break down the numbers and trends for a closer look at what's happening. But what does the growing focus on defense say about our global security situation? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Diplomatic tension is rising around the globe. And with it, nations are boosting their efforts to protect themselves. Global military spending is hitting an all-time high, a whopping $2.2 trillion. That's about a 4% increase from last year. The data comes from a new report released by a Swedish think tank called SIPRI. The three biggest spenders last year were the U.S., China and Russia. Combined, they account for over half of all global military spending. The United States continues to have the world's deepest pockets for defense, with expenses hitting over $800 billion last year. That's nearly a 1% increase. A researcher from the Swedish think tank linked the increase to the conflict in Ukraine. The U.S. has sent about $20 billion worth of aid to the nation, marking the largest amount of military aid given out by a single country since the Cold War. Second place on the spending chart goes to China, shelling out almost $300 billion with an over 4% increase compared to America's 0.7. Beijing has been steadily hiking up its military budget over the past two decades. Across the strait, Taiwan's military spending only saw a slight increase. But this year, the island is planning a drastic rise, about 14%. Zooming out, another sharp increase is coming from Europe. After Russia launched its war on Ukraine, nearby countries said they would beef up their own defenses. Finland pledged over 36 percent, Lithuania over 20 percent, and Sweden over 12 percent. Over in Asia, Japan is the top spender besides China. The country saw its biggest military spending jump since 1960, with the total budget coming in at over $40 billion. And a new national security strategy has laid out plans to spend more in the coming decade. That's over threats from China, North Korea and Russia. The United States is asking an ally to cooperate in the semiconductor war with the Chinese Communist Party. Washington requesting that South Korea urge its microchip makers not to fill a possible market gap in China. That's if Beijing bans U.S.-based producer Micron from selling chips. Here's the latest. The Chinese regime launched a national security review into the U.S. company earlier this month. Micron says it's cooperating with the investigation. It says its operations in China remain normal. The U.S. asked South Korea to encourage Samsung and SK Hynix not to boost sales to China if Micron is banned as a result of the probe. That's according to a report from the Financial Times. The U.S. has imposed export controls on chip-making technologies to China and has blacklisted China's largest chip firms, including Micron's Chinese rival. That's out of concern the technology will be used for military applications. China has spent decades and tens of billions of dollars to build up its own semiconductor industry. 
Right now, 10% of the world's microchips are manufactured in China. But less than 1% of their designs originate in the country. South Korea's President Yoon is in the U.S., and he's meeting with President Biden this week. Up for discussion, nuclear deterrence against totalitarian regimes. The talks come as aggression from both China and North Korea are ramping up. Both communist regimes have nuclear weapons. NTD's Good Morning Show earlier spoke with Grant Newsham, retired Marine colonel and author of When China Attacks. He broke down what's at stake for the U.S.-South Korea partnership. Grant Newsham, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you on the show. Oh, glad to be here. So South Korea's president is actually going to be in the U.S. this week. He's going to be stopping at the Korean War Monument and also a summit with President Biden later this week. What can we expect out of this U.S. trip? Well, it's going to at least solidify the relationship between the Biden administration and Yoon's conservative administration. And I think the Americans will go all out to show just how much they value the relationship and also uh, try to um, send uh, President Yoon back with some, uh, some benefits, uh, particularly on the trade front. And on that note, it seems, you know, this, this trip comes on the heels of Yoon's recent interview with Reuters where he was talking about Taiwan. And he said the Taiwan issue is not simply an issue between China and Taiwan, but like the issue of North Korea, it is a global issue. And Beijing was quite irked by that. They see Taiwan as an internal affair matter. So what do you make of his statement here? Well, he's sticking his neck out. China was furious, as they always are, but from the American perspective, it's very useful, important to have uh, the, the South Koreans on America's side. And China per, uh, is a just, it's a huge threat, even more to South Korea than it is to us, uh, geography being what it is. Uh, but South Korea offers some very useful uh, things, particularly in armaments manufacture, manufacturing, uh, which can uh, be very useful in helping us restock our arsenals. And there's some talk even of South Korea helping out Ukraine uh, with some actual military hardware and uh, ammunition. Uh, so we'll see where this goes. And Grant, expanding on that, there are reports that during this summit and this trip to the U.S., the U.S. and South Korea are set to increase their nuclear deterrence. That's in the face of North Korea and China's rising nuclear arms. So how do you read that deterrence? Well, ultimately, it depends on American nuclear weapons being used to defend South Korea if necessary. And that, of course, is in large part, it's a promise. And you have to weigh how much uh, one can rely on another country's promises. Um, but also, the does matter where we have nuclear weapons stored and how we're able to use them as well, particularly as North Korea's nuclear uh, capabilities and delivery systems uh, just get better and better, and not to mention uh, what China's got. Uh, so the South Koreans are, however, it said, thinking about nuclear weapons of their own. If you look at it, you've got North Korea uh, up to the north. You have the Russians up there, China to the west. And it's pretty easy to uh, isolate, surround South Korea uh, in the event, for example, Taiwan gets taken and China gets complete domination of the South China Sea sea lanes. The South Koreans are well aware of this, and that is shaping uh, some of their behavior. But they do need to see that they've got some uh, friends who have their own act together and that will stand up for them. Grant Newsham, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much for having me.
Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is also set to meet with President Biden next week. The Philippine ambassador to the United States said Marcos may discuss the situation surrounding Taiwan with Biden. But he noted the talks will focus on trade and investment. The ambassador said China is the Philippines' number one trading partner and that Japan, a top U.S. ally, is also a major trading partner. He went on to explain that the Philippines wants to boost trade with the United States. This comes as the U.S. and Philippines launched air defense missiles for a live fire exercise Tuesday as part of their annual joint drills. The exercises aim to improve aerial defense near the disputed Spratlys Islands in the South China Sea. We are absolutely committed to going at the pace and the desires of partners, allies and the region, uh, but also to make sure that we are prepared um, in order to provide ready forces as necessary. Tuesday's drills are part of a nearly three-week annual bilateral exercise between Manila and the U.S. This year's is the largest in scale yet, with over 17,000 participating soldiers. A new wave of Indo-Pacific support now coming from Guatemala. The country's president pledging his unconditional support for Taiwan on Tuesday. His visit to the island comes on a backdrop of pressure from Beijing, as the Communist Party leans on the handful of countries that still maintain formal ties with the island. Here's what the president had to say. Speaking at a welcome ceremony outside Taiwan's presidential office, Guatemalan President Alejandro Giamate referred to the island as the Republic of Taiwan, instead of using its official name, the Republic of China. He also called Guatemala and Taiwan important allies and, quote, brotherly countries. Guatemala will continue to stand with the Republic of Taiwan while being its most solid diplomatic ally and will continue to deepen cooperation in all areas. He especially noted the areas of health, economy and infrastructure. And to end his speech, Long live free Taiwan. The show of support comes after a setback for the island last month when Honduras abandoned Taipei for Beijing. Guatemala is one of just 13 countries that still have official diplomatic ties with Taiwan, under pressure from the Chinese regime. Guatemala's relations with the island go back nine decades to before Taiwan's government fled from China in 1949. That's after losing a civil war when the Chinese Communist Party took power. Beijing views Taiwan as its own territory and staunchly opposes any relations between it and foreign nations. The Chinese foreign ministry denounced the president's three-day visit, saying there was no room for Taiwanese independence. The trip comes after Taiwanese president Tsai Ing-wen visited Guatemala less than a month ago. Wolf warrior diplomacy, it's an expression China uses to brand its assertive diplomatic strategy. But how do Chinese officials put it into practice? Over the weekend, Beijing's top diplomat in Paris, Lu Xiaoye, questioned the sovereignty of former Soviet Union states. The remarks sparked outrage in Europe, and even Beijing's foreign ministry distanced itself from his words. Since taking up his post in 2019, Lu has not been a stranger to controversy. China's strictly enforced zero COVID-19 policy has been at the forefront of debate, sparking anger and rare nationwide demonstrations last year. 
At the time, Liu told a group of journalists in France that the protests were taken advantage of by unnamed foreign forces without providing evidence. And earlier in 2020, he also weighed in on the Taiwan issue. The Chinese Communist Party sees the democratically governed island as its own territory, despite never having ruled it. Liu claimed that Taiwanese people had been brainwashed by ideas of independence and therefore should be re-educated. Some drew parallels between that comment and China's descriptions of its concentration camps for Uyghurs and Muslim minorities in the Xinjiang region. The diplomat also came under fire during the early stages of the pandemic. In April 2020, the French Foreign Ministry summoned Liu over an article posted on the Chinese embassy's website. It stated that French health workers were leaving elderly patients to die in nursing homes. Chile says it wants to nationalize its lithium industry. The nation is the world's second largest producer of the metal, which is essential for making electric vehicle batteries. Worth noting, China has links to the South American country's industry. Here's more. President Gabriel Boric announced a shock move in a televised address on Thursday, saying it's the country's best chance at, quote, transitioning to a sustainable and developed economy. Chile Chile has one of the largest lithium reserves of the world. It is a mineral that, being in electric bus and car batteries, is key in the fight against the climate crisis, against climate change. This is an opportunity for economic growth that will be difficult to beat in the short term. The announcement poses a fresh challenge to EV makers scrambling to secure battery materials as more countries look to protect their natural resources. Mexico nationalized its lithium deposits last year, while Indonesia banned exports of nickel ore, a key battery material, in 2020. Boric's plans for public-private partnerships managed by the state mean control of Chile's vast lithium operations would in time be transferred from industry giants SQM and Albemarle to a state-owned company. Albemarle said the announcement would have no material impact on our business, while SQM was not immediately available for comment. Congress has to approve these plans. It has been a check on many of Boric's more ambitious proposals and shelved a tax reform bill in early March. Chilean chemical supplier SQM is one of two companies that control Chile's lithium operation. It's linked to a Chinese company called TNT Lithium Core, its second largest shareholder. The Chinese company is also linked to the world's largest lithium producer, Australia-based Albemarle. Together, they run a joint venture. Coming up 24 years ago, on April 25th, 10,000 practitioners of the spiritual movement Falun Gong gathered in Beijing to appeal. The demonstration ended peacefully. A month later, the Chinese Communist Party launched a countrywide persecution campaign against Falun Gong, which continues today. We spoke to Gregory Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association, for more information. More on that after the break, here on China In Focus. Welcome back to China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. On this day in 1999, a historic event was held in China, though it didn't get much public attention. 
On April 25th, 10,000 practitioners of the Chinese meditation movement Falun Gong gathered in Beijing to appeal to the communist regime. It became the biggest demonstration since the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, but this one ended peacefully. We spoke to Gregory Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association, for his view of the event and what followed. And Gregory, you mentioned it didn't get the type of attention it should have. So why is that? I think the, the international media is not really attuned to what's going on in the, in, in the People's Republic of China. We still see the myth being perpetuated every day. But it's not so much a myth as a, as a craven desire for uh, the Chinese economy to keep rising and rising uh, and, and feeding the global uh, economic uh, uh, community. The reality is that those days are over. We've moved away from globalization uh, and globalism and we're moving back to uh, bilateral trade agreements predominating. We're seeing an end to the PRC's ability to invest in the Belt and Road Initiative uh, and, and in fact the uh, the government of the PRC or the Communist Party uh, has been desperate to try to claw back some of the loan and investment funds that they've put out into the world community over the, the past decade. And Gregory, turning back to the 425 event in front of Zhongnanhai, it was the biggest peaceful petition in Beijing since Tiananmen, which did end as a massacre. How do you view the actions of the people that day, so the Falun Gong adherents and the Chinese officials? Well, I think, belatedly, the Communist Party is learning not to overreact every time there is a public demonstration. Uh, had they suppressed the 425 demonstration the way they suppressed the, the, the uh, protesters in Tiananmen Square, then it would have become an enduring symbol and, uh, uh, of, uh, the, of the Communist Party's oppression. So the Communist Party is attempting to look as a conciliatory. Uh, look, the way they're, they're handling internal dissent uh, in the recent years has been with the zero COVID campaign. In other words, not suppressing crowds who are protesting on economic grounds. They're just saying we have to disperse you for your own good because there's this uh, pandemic threat and it's, uh, it's, this is a health issue. It's not a, it's not a political issue. It's not a protest issue. Uh, so uh, the, there's no question that uh, the Communist Party of China is learning how to handle crowd control. But on the other hand, uh, the conditions are getting worse and worse for Chinese people who've, who've lost their life savings. And so the protests will grow in number. And Gregory, you mentioned crowd control. And it seems a few months after this event in front of Zhongnanhai, the Chinese regime changed its tune. It called it a siege of Zhongnanhai and launched a brutal persecution campaign against Falun Gong adherents. So how do you view that action? Well, I mean, the, j just because um, Beijing is is learning not to um, react immediately with with uh, if you like heavy-handed tactics in the street, doesn't mean that they are abandoning heavy-handed tactics. They follow up on all of these uh, situations, su such as that uh, protest, and they they find and punish everybody they can find who's been involved in in them, uh, and we see that. It, with every situation, the, the um, internal security is very, very good at doing this because they do have such strong um, 
facial recognition software, for example, to identify people in crowds. They've got the ability to control the lives and movements of, of most of the citizens of the of the country. Uh, they can turn off their ability to gain to get cash out of their bank accounts or to ride on a bus or to even leave their apartments. And to your point, the clampdown or persecution against Falun Gong adherents continues to this day. And for 24 years, Falun Gong adherents have been pushing back against that. So how do you view that effort by Falun Gong adherents? Well, uh, it's um, it requires the, the Falun Gong resistance has been inspiring, but it is also one which uh, a form of resistance which requires enormous patience and self-control. And I, I think this is one of the hallmarks, if you like, of the the, the whole Falun Gong philosophy. In any event, it's uh, it's elevating the spirit uh, of the the individual to a sense of nobility, patience, and and perseverance. Uh, this is going to be very hard for any. Uh, organization like the Communist Party of China to ever suppress uh, and in fact uh, the reality is that uh, the Falun Gong will and can take the punishment uh, but it's it's really um, it's really a painful a painful thing to see that they have to endure this kind of ongoing uh, oppression but it within the mainland Chinese boundaries because it's, uh, it means that there are a lot more people who are being sacrificed to the CCP than the world ever gets to know about. And Gregory, on this topic, any final words you'd like to share? There is now in Australia a growing recognition that there is no alternative strategically but to stand by the Republic of China on Taiwan. And this is a sign that the once seemingly inexorable growth of the People's Republic of China it has disappeared. It's not, uh, the People's Republic of China is not seen as the next great superpower. The only way for Xi Jinping to prevail is if the United States itself collapses. And that's unlikely to happen before the collapse of the Communist Party of China. Definitely a more comforting note. And actually, speaking of the bears, there's that viral patch that was going around mm -hmm. on the Taiwanese pilot showing the Taiwan black bear punching <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. And Gregory like Copley, it. thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. Great to be with you. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.